This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Body Talk. Today, we have my friends Chris and Anne Frederick talking about one of the most popular topics we've ever had on Body Talk, hypermobility and how to deal with people who have hypermobility disorders. But first, I want to talk to you about my friends at Anatomyscapes. As hands-on health professionals, we want more than labeled charts with muscles, nerves, and bones. We want anatomy education that informs our touch. And that's why I want to tell you about their Anatomy Lovers eBox. Each month, you get an image-packed, research-loaded mini-course that includes a one-hour webinar that you can rewatch at any time, a really vibrant e-zine full of images and science, a shareable anatomy art card, and a brief video from the lab where Rochelle Clausen and Nicole Tremblay show you how the anatomy looks, feels, moves, and relates to its surroundings. I'm a subscriber, and every month, I learn something new or I refine something that I thought I knew. Anyway, it's a treat you don't want to miss. And Body Talk listeners save 10% from their Anatomy Lovers eBox subscription if they use the code Friends of David. It's all in the show notes. And I really encourage you to go check out anatomyscapes.com. Anatomyscapes, they take the gross out of gross dissection. And now let's get on with our guests. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Body Talk. And on this episode, we are really, I'm really happy to have friends and friends of the show, the co-creators of Frederick Stretch Therapy, formerly Fascial Stretch Therapy, Chris and Ann Frederick. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Hi there, David. Hello. And we are here to talk about some novel approaches and different ways of thinking about treating people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorder. But I think first we should kind of define the parameters of what those terms actually mean. Oh, thank you, uh, David. I'll start. So Merriam-Webster, you know, just the word hypermobility, they define it as an increase in range of motion or movement of which a body part or a joint is capable. So anything that is considered moving too much beyond that, and it's going to sound a little ambiguous there, we'll get into more details, is considered hypermobile. Then when you get into uh, the aspect of hypermobility spectrum disorder, which is a relatively new diagnosis and I'll use a reference, AhlersDonalds.com. That's Ehlers Donalds Society. And they're really foremost to my knowledge and to doctors I've spoken to. They always refer to that website as having done some of the greatest work in this area. And so the uh, hypermobility spectrum disorders or HSD, they say are connective tissue disorders that cause joint hypermobility, instability, injury, and pain. However, other things like fatigue, headaches, GI problems, autonomic dysfunction are often also seen with HSD. Now with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which in my words is a more on some level 
extreme case of HSD plus, <laughs> uh, they define EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, as basically it's a group of 13 heritable connective tissue disorders. And they're caused by genetic changes that affect the connective tissue in all of them. But each type of EDS has its own set of features and its own diagnostic criteria, which we're not gonna get into in this conversation. What is pertinent to this conversation, I believe, some of the features that are seen across all types of EDS include joint hypermobility, skin hyperextensibility, and tissue fragility. And so, well, I'll, I'll just end with most common, I'm sorry, but most common, I just want to say this because this is just wraps it up. Most common is HADS, EDS, which is hypermobility EDS, which occurs in the majority of clients with EDS. So I just wanted to say to the practitioners out there, if you're going to see some of the EDS and you're not working in a hospital where they see all the whole spectrum of EDS, you're probably going to see more likely the hypermobility category out of the 13 categories, the hypermobility category, um, which I just defined. Yeah. And I, I would say that definitely fits more the profile that I've seen, but I want to go back for a minute to those three main ones that you mentioned. Uh, the second, those, those three main features. Number two, you talked about skin extensibility. Yeah. Let's talk, let's unpack that a little bit. I've seen this on Google images. You can see people pulling their cheeks way out or any part of their body. There are people who actually make a living doing that for entertainment for people. Cameo. And I have to say, without knowing the facts behind it, they have EDS. So if you can pick somebody up by the scruff of their neck and they're not a cat, you may have EDS. <laughs> I would say the likelihood of them having EDS is extremely mm -hmm. high. Okay. Yes. So, but that goes also concomitantly with, you said, skin fragility. Or am I misremembering that? Yeah, well, yeah, concomitantly, and it's going to be a different presentation. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the functional physicians, functional medical physicians that I've worked with, he talks about scars uh, that you can see skin, um, like stretch marks mm -hmm. in kids. In kids. And in teens. Yes, in kids and in teenagers, particularly during growth phase, when we all like to think as practitioners, the bones, we always explain to our clients to make it easy. The bones are growing faster than the myofascia and the muscles in the fascia. So you're going to hurt. It hurts, right? You have the growth pains and it will at some point slow down and stop when you reach full height. It's a temporary phase, especially during that phase, which kind of makes sense. Tissue fragility becomes more apparent with kids and teenagers, puberty, where there no one knows, let's say they even have EDS or HSD, and we can get into that. But if you start seeing as a parent, as a coach doing sport in sports, or anyone that sees these children, and you see this, there is a suspicion that they may have EDS, they should be checked out. And we can talk about a little bit more because it can lead to chronic pain and injury very soon thereafter if not as an adult. Now, since this is a connective tissue disorder, are you aware of any supplemental um, remedies that could be used to strengthen the connective tissue? Do we not know anything about that yet? Or is that not such a good idea? 
Um, two things. Number one, I spoke to uh, a, a researcher who does research, and he's quoted a lot with the NFL, the National Football League, and he does a lot on muscle research. And when I listened to him speak just last, just a few months ago, and talk to us about muscle and what they use for muscle, creatine specifically, he did some research on that. I said, what about connective tissue and bone broth and you know the kind of supplements you can take to help joints and cartilage and all that? He says, there's not enough evidence for us to use in the NFL. We can't approve it or endorse it in the NFL right now. He says, there's, there's a lot of great stories, but we cannot do it without enough science. Now, the other side of the story is this um, one of one of the physicians that I interviewed, Dr. Aaron Hartman out of um, Virginia, he's an MD, specializes in highly complex medical conditions from children to adults, and in, especially with hypermobility spectrum disorder and EDS. He has had remarkable success but with a multi-system approach, right? It's not just any one thing, as we all should know by now. So vitamin C for the connective tissues, which a lot of us are familiar with, he's had to use it in an IV intravenous form to actually save some children's lives who couldn't eat. This one particular client could not. Vitamin C in an IV? Yeah, yes, but guess what? He couldn't find a vein to put the IV in because of her... EDS and hypermobility of the connective tissue was too slippery, slidey all over the place. So what he did was he put her on a teaspoon of bone broth every 15 minutes. Then he was able to, after a while, get the more stability, let's say, in the connective tissue of the vein, was able to do venipuncture or a vein, put in an IV, then get So how, any idea how long it took to get that stability. You know, it started happening in weeks. Hours, it, days. It started weeks. happening in weeks. Um, and then it, I can't give you the exact number of weeks. Um, you know, I did mm -hmm. do an interview with him on YouTube, but people can look that up. But it's an it's really a remarkable interview to listen to all the details he gives. Um, but she was, held, the, in the end, this little girl was able to eat again because her her stomach, her digestive system had this paresis and people with EDS, severe EDS can have ptosis or a dropping, a weakening, a failing of organs. They just hang. They don't have motility. And so. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because the, the, the ligaments aren't strong enough to hold all the connective place. tissue that make up ligaments. I never thought about it from, from an organ function standpoint. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And what's even more amazing is that we can help these people but this little gal with, you know, Mayo Clinic is great. They helped her to a certain extent, but that was it. She went to see this functional medical doc and she really started to take off and get real solid help and get stability in her connective tissue system. So, and it saved her life. But we'll put a link to that interview that you did with this doctor in the show notes for sure. Now you yourself, this is a little personal for you, isn't it, Chris? It's a little personal, you know. <laughs> i'm gonna take i've a, seen your neck move i am gonna I've take it i am gonna take this personally <laughs> yeah did what did you want to know about my disorder my personal 
HSD? Well, I mean, you were a dancer for many, 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 many years. And my understanding is that you had a relatively pain-free life until you stopped dancing. Yes. Um, I fall in the category if we want to just uh, help people understand mm -hmm. the different categories. So I would consider yeah. myself as having hypermobility spectrum disorder, but I dropped the word disorder because I don't like it. I am on the spectrum of hypermobility, but I was asymptomatic like a lot of children are. One out of five now, 20% of children's teens and adults have HSD, which I never knew until the last, over the last really six months to 12 months I found this out. It's really that common. And one in 100 have EDS. Yeah, so it's not so much a disorder as a variation. It, it you know, I, I I like to think of it that way until it becomes medical condition. You know, you, you have some real serious issues, right? It's more than a variation. And so mm -hmm. with me, I was asymptomatic. So there's a lot of kids, and this is good for parents to know and whoever's listening, parents, practitioners, uh, physicians of all kinds, to know that um, basically the hypermobility can be accompanied with no pain. You can have hypermobility and no pain. These are the kids that are pushed. Be a cheerleader, be a gymnast, join this sport, um, do yoga, yeah. do all these things. And they're encouraged until they start having problems, but they try to ignore the pain. You know, gymnastics and dance, we're pushed to go beyond the pain. Unfortunately, a lot of kids get permanently injured. And this is, you know, I really want to get on the soapbox to get people to be much more aware if you're in a position of responsibility with kids in sports or wherever, and as a parent, to find these things out early if you have any suspicions that these things are, uh, that they may be hypermobile, take a look at it and just see if it's something to, you know, get some more. Is, is there a typical age range where the asymptomatic starts to manifest and become more you know, symptomatic? It starts right away. Like you'll have kids do W sit. And a lot of kids do W sit where they sit, turn, you know, internally rotate in their hips and they flail out to the side and they're comfortable. And I could do that too. I could still do that with a little more effort. <laughs> um, and I don't do that because it's not healthy, right, for your joints. But kids do that and they think they grow out of it. Well, they may grow out of it and do other things like over the over splits and the other things because they're super hyper, super flexible. The thing is, yes, there's evidence of kids showing their knees going into hyperextension or they look double jointed uh, in the common language. The, uh, what, the, what the public would say, my kid is double jointed. Hey, I'm going to put them in gymnastics. They should be good at that. Not so fast. Get them check out, checked out to make sure they have stability in those joints in order to do gymnastics safely. Well, if I may, along those lines, I can give you a few quotes for what people say that make you start to think maybe this person might have HSD. We should check it out. So kids and teens, they're like, look what I can do with my body. I used to do that. I could swing my head around. I can zigzag with my neck. I can pop my shoulders out of joint. I can do all these weird things with my body. And no one said not to do that. They laughed. Yeah, it was kind of a fun party trick. But they're like, do it, do it some more. Show what, show what else can you do? So I was encouraged. I did pop and lock and animation, all these little street dancing in the streets of Brooklyn, New York. And then eventually I went into dance. But 
those things for kids can become dangerous activities. You can really severely sprain things and permanently deform your body if you keep pushing. And some people say, I feel my bones shifting. That's an interesting comment, right? I mean, when they're, kids don't say that, but older people say my bones are shifting or I feel pinching my joints, which a lot of people can feel, but these people feel, people with HSD or suspected HSD or EDS will say, I get pinching in my joints. They'll also say, paradoxically, my muscles feel so tight, I can't relax. So it's a paradox, right? They have this skin extensibility. They have this looseness in their connective tissue. Their muscles are so tight because that's all they have to hang on for stability. Yeah, the muscles are trying to do the job of the fascia. They'll say, I can't find a comfortable position to sleep in or sit in. I wake up with my joints in weird, painful places. I get spasms and cramps. Now, how did you manage to treat and manage your own issues with this as they manifested later in your life? Well, honestly, um, I did nothing about it. I really believe that taking gymnastics in high school and then ballet, contemporary dance and ballet later made me strong, stronger. It actually helped me support my hypermobility, even though I used my hypermobility more than I normally would probably because they would have me push. I was in basically at a professional level. So we're really pushing our bodies anatomically, right? We go into our joints a lot, but we have a lot of strength. And honestly, I didn't sprain my ankle, David, until I quit dance and I'm walking along a mountain ridge and flip, my ankles flip. And I, they kept flipping here and there every once as I was guaranteed six times a year, I'd flip my ankle and sprain it severely. I was like, what is going on here? And it was like, I'm not dancing anymore. And I'm not doing anything to stabilize my joints like I should. And I was like, yeah, I should know better. I'm a physical therapist. <laughs> <laughs> we should know better, but that doesn't always mean we do. So that's when I knew there's something more here. I knew I was super flexible, but I thought, you know, you see all dancers seem flexible, but seem just normal until I started getting injured and started getting some pain that I never had before. So I had to buckle down, double down, and really start purposefully working on proprioception because I couldn't tell where my joints were. My shoulders were hard to tell where neutral is. I can't tell. And I would end up, they would sublux while I'm lifting something. Oh, yeah, you would feel go out of joint and it would hurt. It would pinch. I would get pinching. I got swimmer shoulder when I took up swimming until I learned how to stabilize my rotator cuff when I pulled through the water. I had to consciously do that until I learned how to just do it naturally when I swim. Yeah, that's my next question so, is, did there come to be a point where you didn't have to be quite so conscious of it anymore? And what was that journey like? Yes, Um I think swimming was the best example where it was quite obvious. I was getting this rotator cuff pain and I was getting uh, impingement. And I, my old me would be walk it off or in this case, swim it off. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it hurts. Everything hurts when you really push things. Don't be a, you know, a sissy about it. And so I said, no, let's be more intelligent and let's figure this out. I'm a physical therapist now. Let's figure this out. So I realize if I can consciously stabilize it, and it's interesting, David, it's dynamic stability, right? It's not just holding your core. You hold your core anyway when you swim. You're supposed to constantly. That alone did not stabilize my shoulders, though, however. 
So I had to use extra stability dynamically through this full range in the water, pulling it. Um, and that would give me pain relief. And it went from conscious to unconscious. The more I swam on a regular basis, luckily it kicked in. I got synchronized in my whole body, coordinated. So anyone listening, there's hope out there. You may have to start with cues, verbal cues, manual cues, looking in the mirror to see where your joints are, working with an experienced physical therapist, structural integrationist, whoever really understands this and works with hypermobility. And if you need more help, get referred to the proper uh, position. We can talk about this later for other interventions that can help. Things are just not getting better. Mm -hmm. well, you mentioned structural integration. You and I both have that training. Generally speaking, uh, we're good at loosening things that are too tight. So how, how do you recommend modifying that approach for those people listening in the audience right now who are working with or maybe interested in working with people uh, on this spectrum? I think it would be assessment, assessing. It's all about the assessment first before you just try to release something that someone says this is tight or you feel it's tight if you move it passively. You have to really understand, do they need that stability? And that's mm -hmm. why it's tight. That's the main thing. Do they need that stability for any reason? Whether yeah, it's a Where's local... the stability coming from? Right. I think you have to somehow get that question answered. And the only way to understand that is to do lots of, you know, movement with people where you help them, they help themselves, you give assistance, you give resistance, you need to do pe testing passively, actively, active assisted and resisted. When you get that full comprehensive assessment, you understand where they're holding unnecessarily and necessarily. Now, is there is there a screen that has been developed to be to systematize this a little bit, or is it still kind of in the development stages? Well, um, yes. I mean, if you want to talk about, I would say start with a Baiten score or Biten score. That would be B E I G H T O N scoring system. And you could see the visuals on the Ehlers Donald Society website. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like, I've just briefly described it. Mm -hmm. If a structural integration practitioner or any practitioner starts with this, it's an easy way to start so that you at least can raise your suspicions whether someone may have um, HSD or EDS. So if you have the client put their hand, palm flat on the table, counter your massage table, and then you pick up their pinky, and if it goes to 90 degrees into extension, that would be considered one point on the Baton scoring system. If And you do that on both sides, so that would be two points if both pinkers do that. Then the thumbs, you would have palm down, elbow straight, wrist fully flexed. Then you take their thumb, and or they can take their thumb, and can they touch their forearm with their thumb? If they can do it with two thumbs, that's an additional two points. Now they have four points. Um, you move to the elbows. If they straighten their elbow and it goes beyond 10 degrees, but honestly, David, in my book, it's more like five degrees. If I see five degrees hyperextension, it's like it's already, you know, I would say between five and 10 degrees. Yeah. I mean, most most people aren't going to get one degree. Mm -hmm. They'll get one point for each, for each elbow. So that would be six points if all these are positive. The next would be the knees. If they hyperextend, 
or go into genu recurvatum, we call it, or go backwards, double jointed, again, between five and 10 degrees, that would be an additional two points. So now you have two, four, six, eight. The last one is spine. If you can bend over with straight knees and touch your palms on the ground, you have one point for a total of nine points. So if you get something, depends on which country you are in, UK or here, but if you get between you know, five and six points, you're considered at high risk to have this HSD at least. But guess what? If I take the scoring system, Dave, and this is where it's of limited use, it's a good way to start. But if I do this test myself, I get one point. So all, all I can do is I can touch the, uh, the floor palms and my knees um, actually don't go backward. They stay straight, but I can touch it down. So, so honestly, David, it's a very basic, limited way. And if they do have all of these, yeah, that's high risk. You know, pretty sure what you're dealing with. But if you just have someone like me that just touches their palms, it doesn't mean that they don't have hypermobility. You just haven't checked out the entire body yet. Body Talk will return after the break. Hey, everybody, it's me. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this podcast, to stop what you're doing, unless you're driving, go to whatever app you get your podcast on, and please follow or subscribe to the show if you don't already. It really makes a difference. Leave a five-star review. Leave a six-star review if they'll let you. But leave a review. Do that thing. It really helps bump Body Talk up the chain. We were in the 10% most shared podcasts last year. I'd like to see that uh, end even higher this year, but I can't do it without you. So when you have a moment, give it a rating, give it a follow. Thanks a lot. And let's get back to the show. Now, Anne, we haven't heard much from you yet, but I understand you have an amazing story. I always am astounded at the humor the universe has because I spent decades and decades developing a technique for the hypomobile population, which is 80% of those out there and kept us busy for a long, long time. But I had an opportunity to have a young lady um, who had a pretty traumatic childhood. She had a near fatal um condition when she was 10, she was diagnosed with um, encephalitis and just about died. They had to basically do tendon transfers from her Achilles, slide them through interosseous and staple them to the front of her legs because she had dropped foot bilaterally. And so, but in addition to it, she's got EDS and never was diagnosed and her shoulders are sublocks, her patella sublocks, and she swam and she did all kinds of things. And she um, was basically just told, well, just don't stretch because you don't need to. And when I started working with her, I realized very, very quickly that everything I had done before was the opposite of what this young lady needed. So I figured out if I compressed her hips or shoulders back into the sockets and held them nice and steady for an extended amount of time, sometimes over 20 minutes, just staying there and holding them securely. All of a sudden she exhales and everything lets go and releases and feels like it's safe again. So 
So you would be practically, you would be putting the appropriate amount of force, let's just say mm -hmm. in the glenohumeral joint and just hanging out there with that compression for 15 to 20 minutes. I would do that. Space. And then I would also shorten with one hand. I do that with my other hand, I'd shorten the tendon or tendons in the area at the same time and hold on to that. And then she would literally exhale and everything would soften. All the, the muscles around her would soften. She goes, ah, there, now I feel good again. And that was one of those eureka moments for you? Was, it was, was a giant eureka moment because all of a sudden I thought, oh dear, this is the opposite of everything I've spent all this time developing. And I think I have a brand new chapter of what I'm supposed to develop because this, and what's so interesting, David, is we've started to, to assess um, when students come in and, and, you know, we say, how many of you in the room are hypermobile? And I'm astounded at the percentage of people that come to do our training that are hypermobile. I, I swear to you, every time I've worked with somebody in one of your classes, I get stuck with the hypermobile person. <laughs> well, and in five minutes, it's like, well, we've just done all of the things. That's what's, <laughs> what do that's, we do now? That's what's so ironic because I think so much of the time, um, you know, and like Chris mentioned, people that have that natural talent and, and propensity go into Pilates, go into dance, go into yoga, go into gymnastics, go into things that they're naturally good at until it becomes detrimental. So I think, and a lot of them go into physical therapy. A lot of them want to help and heal. So I think we see a lot of those come through our doorway. But I think the most amazing thing is how, when you can make somebody feel safe by putting the joints back in and holding them long enough to do the neural remapping for it, all kinds of things start to shift in the positive. So it's been a um, an awakening and humbling new discovery of a whole protocol we need to come up with because I think there's a giant need out there um, to supplement trying to get the things that are stuck to be loosened. And like Chris says, it comes down to the assessment because if something is holding rigidly, we need to figure out why. If there's something, there's a guarding or protecting that we don't want to disarm that and then make them unstable. So I think as practitioners, we need to be more mindful of looking at the entire spectrum of what's going on in that body. And sometimes when you, you have somebody who's too mobile in one area, they're hype, they're hypo in another. And as I always put it, it's balancing the net to create ease. And sometimes when you can recalibrate one area, it can positively affect another. And that's kind of the, the, the biotensegrity piece of, of, the approach of what we are in the process of developing now. Getting back to that specific case where you work with in your Eureka moment, how many treatments, give or take, did you continue to do with this person? And, and what was the overall net effect? What were her gains? How long was the journey and what were the gains? Well, we're, we're still, we're still working because it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, I would say the first time I worked on her, she'd been so terrorized by people in her uh, childhood with anybody in the medical profession that she just was so frightened out of her mind that I just basically um, held her and quite honestly did Reiki work with her and kept her safe and cocooned and didn't do much beyond that. Second time she laid down on the table, she was way more receptive knowing I wasn't going to hurt her. And I started being able to do a bit more. Um, and to be perfectly honest, um, the last time I worked on her, I worked on her diaphragm and I worked on her rib cage because she's never been able to activate her abdominals. 
So I got her ribs to, to shift around and her diaphragm to open. And she's got a shunt that drains from her head down to her stomach still because of the um, condition she had when she was 10. And we got the shunt to move. So it's very interesting to see she's now got her hips underneath her. She's now on the treadmill. She's running. It, it's pretty remarkable. Oh my God. I, I'm wow. I'm just blown away. Now I have to ask because I have seen this. Was was she at all using a, a wheelchair or some kind of assistance no. to when no, you met her? No, she okay. just she, she walks in a in a unusual way, and it's always interesting because once I work on her, her gait normalizes and she can feel the floor for the first time. Wow, it's it's pretty remarkable. It's um she's giant inspiration as to what's possible, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to continue the journey with her. And we're, we're um, doing a case study of it because it's so fascinating to see um, restoring. She's got muscle um, actually developing in her glutes for the first time ever. Her calves are finally getting some sort of signal. How old is this person? 25. Okay. All right. Wow. That's extraordinary. I hope you're planning to publish this at some point. Yeah, I, I'm. She's all all about um, sharing it, so I think That's it's great. pretty pretty exciting because it gives people hope. And the doctors gave her none, and I just it's that story over and over again about what's possible if you truly listen and honor and work within their tolerance and um, not get greedy about gaining things too quickly. Eventually, I assume there's going to be your pioneering mapping new techniques for this, just like you did with the other techniques all those years ago. Indeed. So, you know, another chapter, actually, this is, to me, it feels more like a brand new book. It's not a chapter. It's just going to be the next, the next uh, evolution of where we head. And it's exciting because it's the, the other end. And, you know, I spent the first 25 years teaching dancing and what I did with my dancers is my dancers never, ever were hurt ever. And one of the reasons is I always trained them to have um, tendon end strength. So we take them to full range and then would have them do um, full resistance and have functional range. So my whole thing was, I don't care how flexible you are. I care about your ability and your motor control to move it through space. So I did all of the training in positions where we get into them and then we do we do tendon strengthening. And I really believe, and I did that in, intuitively from the very beginning, knowing that it, flexibility does you no good if you can't move it through space. So I think these hypermobile folk and um, people that don't know that that's possible, I think that's kind of where we're going with with re um, reevaluating what's possible in strengthening in ways to make them feel stable and less um, on edge of being hurt. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to reading this case study when it's done and seeing you continue to develop through this. Is there anything more you want to add to the discussion that we're having before we kind of wrap things up for today? I think it's just, it, I think the main thing, David, is the, the awareness that we want to put out there, the level of people, um, practitioners have to be mindful when somebody's stands in front of them or lays down on the table in front of them as to what the real story is. And I think one of the things, you know, Chris has always been brilliant at is that really, really thorough 
um, intake and assessment and listening to their story because so much of the time, as you know, when they show up on our doorstep and on our tables, we're oftentimes the last resort yeah, we and they're yeah. so um, in such a state of desperation and hopelessness that it just, it's so important that we look at the whole person and not just the symptoms because a lot of the symptoms start to, um, they start to wear what the symptomology is, is defining them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's part of their identity and I think it, in a big way. It's so important to give them the respect to truly listen. And I think um, as Chris and I work on the development of the assessment and work on the development of this new, um, for lack of a better word, protocol that we're in the process of developing, it should be exciting to share with people such as yourself. Gladly, gladly. And I want I want to add to that. We were talking earlier about not rushing the gains, being satisfied with small gains. To that, I would add, don't rush the intake. Absolutely. Sometimes we're in such a hurry to go in with our hands and do something and make a difference. And sometime in that initial first visit, letting them tell their story for 45 or 50 minutes and then maybe only having 10 minutes to do one thing that they really like is the best treatment they can have in that first initial visit because they have been not listened to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I yeah. had somebody tell me just yesterday that, thank you, uh, you were the first person in 35 years to take my right leg seriously. Wow. And I'm walking into the details of it. And this is somebody, this is somebody who is very interoceptive, very proprioceptive, and has done a lot of things in her 74-year-old career on this planet. And, mm-hmm. to, and that to me is just astonishing. I, I take the compliment, but at the same time, wow. And, and however you contextualize that, you know, it's, you know, a lot of times I I love it when people say, well, I don't have the words for this. I'm like, fine, use the words you have. Like they feel like they have to somehow use a vocabulary that they think we magically have. It's just explain your experience and and together we'll help figure out how to make it make sense. But what you feel is real. Tell me about it. I think you're right. I think the, the fact that that piece can give you so many answers, so much more effectively than hunting in the dark. And you build the therapeutic trust right then and there because you yeah. listened. It's it's quite simple, isn't it? Yes. In that regard, yes. Chris, Anne, thank you so much for being here today. Always our pleasure, David. Thanks for having us. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That concludes this episode of Body Talk. Comments, questions, feedback? You can email me at bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. You want to help support the show? You can do that at Patreon at patreon.com backslash body talk radio. And of course, please follow or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review really makes a big difference. The music as always is by David in the disasters. And this is David Lasondak for body talk saying we live in an attention economy. And if you give me your attention, I'll always make sure it's worth your time because your time is valuable. See you next time here on Body Talk. Thank you.